Welcome to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm Yuri Kruman, founder and CEO of Commander-in-Chief Media Group, award-winning chief people officer and keynote speaker, author of five books, Fortune 500 consultant and corporate trainer, and contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Newsweek. Our mission at Commander-in-Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now. Through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, HR consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people become their own Commanders-in-Chief. Now, if you're interested in being a guest on the Commander-in-Chief podcast, stick around until the end of the show. We will share with you what we're looking for and how to apply. Welcome, everyone. This is Yuri Kruman, CEO of Master the Talk Consulting, and I'm here with Didi Elzinga, the CEO of Culture Amp, which is a very exciting company I've been following for a while. This is a conversation I'm really looking forward to. Um, so by way of introduction, um, I just want to say that uh, Culture Amp is, in my view, and not just in my view, probably the premier culture analytics company in the world by this point, and um, with quite a repository of data about what works in culture, what doesn't in various stages of companies and industries. And I'm really excited to dive into all of the amazing lessons that you've learned from uh, your experience in building this company and serving your clients. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, I would love to just start by hearing a bit about your story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just the LinkedIn version is, is certainly not one you hear very often. <laughs> um, you know, someone who does math and computer science um, in undergrad goes into coding and then ends up in visual effects um, on the cinema side of things and eventually decides to go into company culture. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about how, <laughs> how that process worked for you and how did you end up here? Isn't that everyone's story? <laughs> no. um, thank you for having me, Yuri. I'm happy to, to share my, my experience. Uh, funnily enough, actually, uh, we were saying before, I'm running on like three hours sleep because I was jet lagged, but I was watching the end of Return of the King last night. So we worked on that film. Oh, and so I was watching some of the shots that I worked on and thinking they didn't age very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> like most things. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, my background is software engineering. Um, I actually did exactly half my points in math and computer science and then half my points in philosophy and politics and anthropology, Makes sense. Uh, which has actually probably become more useful than the computer science, to be honest. Right. Uh, worked as a software engineer, ended up in film, was in film for 13 years, and was the CEO of a, software, of a visual effects company called Rising Sun Pictures mm -hmm. that's worked on Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Batman. That's all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're still, still going and doing amazing work. And the last five years of that 13, I was the CEO. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a lot because uh, we were working from Australia, working for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And a lot, of the work, a lot of the innovation we were doing was not just in terms of how we were creating the shots and what we were doing, writing code to produce images, but also on how we worked. Mm -hmm. And so I was really early on in, in the agile world in terms of applying a lot of those ideas to the world of work. And then it got to the point where I, I was starting to look at my opportunity to do something really meaningful. And as much as I loved the film world and I loved making films, yeah. I realized I liked people and culture more. That this, this so much of what I did was how do you build an effective people and culture? And I looked back on my experience and I actually still just to this day joke that as a CEO, you're a glorified psychiatrist. <laughs> so I thought, I'm still young, I can still afford to fail. Uh, I want to make a bigger dent in the universe than I'm going to be able to make working for Hollywood. I'm going to build a software company. And I'd already built another one on the side uh, in the film world. 
And so I stepped out to found Culture Amp. And it was really around this idea of people and culture matters. How do we use software to help make these ideas more accessible? Because there's all this great research on how to make people more successful, how to build a better world of work for those individuals, but it's not being used. And so that was really the mission and the vision that I founded Culture Amp on. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Um, actually, of course, the the prototype of this, not the CEO, but kind of the, the psychiatrist in chief, we've seen a lot of that in billions. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure you I know it's a very contentious subject, apparently, around here and in general, but um, what do you think about that kind of role? I mean, aside from the CEO who sort of runs everything and oversees everything and may not always be the person that gets the full story up front, frankly. What do you think? Is that a useful role? Data, data or otherwise supported or not? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that. I think one thing is a lot of what we do at Coltramp, so the people science is critical to what we do. Our first employee was uh, our chief scientist, Dr. Jesse McPherson. He comes from a, a psychology background. We have I don't know, probably almost 20 people now inside the company that have PhDs and masters in, in various forms of psychology. Mm -hmm. And so we draw a lot upon that. And I'm actually heavily inspired and influenced in the way we develop the product, not just by HR and culture in the business context, sure. but actually by modern psychology mm -hmm. and the shift. So we went from 30 years ago, you're broken, come into my office, lie down, I'm the expert, tell me your problem and I'll tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at positive psychology and a lot of the modern therapeutic techniques and ACT and DBT and a lot of this stuff, the world is, look, you're not broken, you're human, everyone's going through something. Come in. You're the expert on you. I have a bag of tricks. Let's find some things in here that work for you. I'm going to teach you how to use them so you can become a better version of yourself. So heavily influenced by the idea of psychology and psychologists. I think the challenge in the billions representation is first of all, what she's being asked to do is actually not for the benefit of the employees. That's right. That's it's right. like patch this person up, get them back out there and, you know, get them to fill the hole that they need to fill. That's right. And so she's kind of being um, positioned as a master manipulator. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of what we're trying to do is getting away from that world, which is it's not the CEO, it's, it's not the psychiatrist or a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Culture's messy. It's hard. It's difficult. You know, you have to engage with it and try and make it better. There's no magic formula where somebody who has all the answers, whether they've got all the data or not, right. can kind of go, let's do this. <laughs> That's right. No, it's a very inexact science, um, something I'm very familiar with. My executive coaching practice, you know, part of it is, yes, for CEOs trying to build culture. But the other side of things is coming in and actually drawing the stories up from their employees, whether mm. it's executive level or mid-range or whatever else. Mm. And it's a lot of it is not about what assessment you give. It's just literally getting those stories out. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, when you do coaching long enough, and coaching, of course, there's, in the coaching world, there's a ton of fluff. It's mm -hmm. a lot of it is inexact, and you don't always know what you're getting. But I found that for a lot of companies, especially that are very progressive in terms of, you know, trying to sort of let people do their life's best work, they tend to either bring coaches in-house mm -hmm. or hire outside coaches. And there often is very real progress. Mm -hmm. So, the Wendy example, notwithstanding, because I, I agree with you, I think it's a little bit too dark. Um, I think that there is, and I would like to ask you this a little bit later in the interview, what, if any, positive effect have you found through data um, for your company and for client companies around coaching? We'll, mm. we'll put that aside. Yeah, and happy to come back to it. And, yeah. and also just to reflect on that in the sense of, 
you know, is there space for a coach role inside organizations? Um, absolutely. I mean, I have my own executive coach, uh, John Baird, and uh, he's dealt with a whole bunch of amazing people mm-hmm. and he's incredibly valuable for me. I think the really interesting question of having someone internal is how to make that work. Like, I have no doubt that it's valuable. The challenge is if you have an organization like Coltrane, where we're in Melbourne, San Francisco, New York, and London, where do you put that person? Because most of the coaches I know, even though they will coach over Skype and so on, yep. they really crave and need that. That's there's true. higher bandwidth one-to-one, and so you, you have a limited access to it. Um, but, yeah, coaching itself is valuable, and coaches are valuable. So we can come back to that. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so one of the interesting things that came up uh, from your biography, which which I thought would be um, valuable mm-hmm. for, for us to understand, is unless I'm mistaken, your wife is an opera singer. And a psychologist. And a psychologist to begin with. So um, needless to say, those are very two rather different backgrounds. And I, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, of course, um, very different worldviews and cultures, right? The culture mm-hmm. of the industry, right? Um, I mean, needless to say, in opera, it's, I think, very personality-driven. There's a lot of politics. I mean, politics everywhere. But <laughs> yeah. perhaps they're slightly exaggerated just given the, the stakes of the stage. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, I would love to hear how – this is interesting for me as well because, you know, my wife is from a totally different culture. She's an engineer. I'm more of kind of the, the artist, if you mm-hmm. will. So, um, you know, over 10 years, we've had to figure out how to – bring together vastly different cultures, languages, ways of thinking, ways of bringing up kids to create a certain culture at home. So I would love to hear from you how how you've managed to, to, you know, not just build bridges, but, you know, to create something that wasn't there before you met. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I, I credit a lot of what CultureAmp is to what I've learned from my wife. Yeah. And so on the surface, we're quite different. Uh, and we are different, uh, but also there's actually some commonalities. So if you think about my experience, you know, I've had the privilege to work in two of the more messed up environments of the world. I've worked in Hollywood for over a decade, and yeah. now I've worked in Silicon Valley for over a decade. Um, the music industry and the film industry are quite similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of commonalities. And the things you learn, going back to something you said earlier, is the power of story. And one of the most thing, powerful things that I've learned from watching my wife as an opera singer, so so much of what influences the product I've learned from her as a psychologist and as a thinker. You know, she's the person that says, you should read this. And she's the person that introduced me to Brene Brown. Um, she's the person that introduced me to Marshall Linehan and to a range of different people. Um, but it's actually watching her as a performer too and seeing how she tells a story where she's on stage. And a lot of my job as a CEO is to help tell that story you know, to help curate that experience for people so that we can look yeah. back at ourselves as a company and define that culture together. Mm-hmm. So I found for us coming together in, at home, I think one of the challenges everybody looks at us and goes, your life must be insane. And I guess it is, but, um, <laughs> but that's all you know. Productively <laughs> insane, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And so you learn from each other. And and I think the the thing that cuts through both of our careers is that, that creativity, that need and desire to tell stories. And having spent so much time in film, I've now realized that I've learned more about telling stories in culture than I did in film. It's a very interesting insight. Thank you. So inevitably, as I'm sure you get in every single interview, or perhaps 95%, the question of 
is there a, so to speak, special sauce for a great company culture? And I want to break that down because it's, mm. it's an empty question without context. Let's say, and I would love, you know, if, if you could use Culture Amp as an example of this. Mm -hmm. Clearly, a culture is very different from seed stage to series AB, yes. you know, all the way up to E where you are now. Yeah. And congratulations on the, the fundraise. That's a big, uh, that's a big one. Um, so I would love to hear, you know, whatever insights you can share. And I'm sure we can sit here for hours, but let's not. Um, <laughs> let's, let's try to draw out. You know, my, my particular focus is fast growth companies that are somewhere between seed stage and series B, yep. let's say. So for for my target audience, if you will, I think the most interesting is what comes up in that period of crazy growth where oftentimes the entrepreneur may not have a corporate background. Mm -hmm. and they may be excellent at, you know, product market fit as a product person or excellent at sales but they may be missing that piece of, you know, how do you deal with people in a mm. non-sales capacity? Mm -hmm. So in that period, if we can just narrow mm -hmm. narrow things down between seed stage and, you know, let's say series B, do you think based on your experience of going culture amp and same for clients that have gone mm -hmm. through those stages, is there a particular special sauce? What, what are the factors? Mm. So the, uh, there's no silver bullet. No, There's no perfect. perfect culture. We we yeah. always say that a perfect culture is a cult. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's not what you want. <laughs> Sometimes it might feel like that when that's you're an cool. early stage startup, but that's not what you want. Um, what we do see, though, the characteristics mm -hmm. of successful companies and something that we strive for at CultureAmp and have strove for through that mm -hmm. is, is a few things. Um, the first thing, and this is really why we built the platform, is a willingness to hold up a mirror and be accountable to what you see. Yep. So culture matters. You know, culture is the way things are done around here. Mm -hmm. And as organizations are growing, one of the challenges is that you often don't get successful as a startup if you're not willing to just go over the top of anything, like fight your way through, it's hustle, persistence, all of these mm -hmm. things. But what you see often is people are like, I just want to win. I want to win at all costs. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting not so much in the early stage, but as companies mature, and you, we've seen this play out time and time again, mm -hmm. when you're willing to win at any cost, there is a time where people stop and go, the costs have got too high. Yeah, it, You can't win at any cost. Mm -hmm. There is always a cost that is not worth winning for. And so often early when you, you're going from that, you know, when you seed, you might be two people or 10 people. And the culture is just implicit and you're just running around doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then you're successful and you start to raise money and then you start to hire more people and you have to start being more explicit about who you are and what you are. And so what we see those good companies do is, first of all, they're willing to be accountable. And secondly, they think about, I like to say, brand is a promise to a customer. Culture is how you deliver that promise. Mm -hmm. So culture is not like, what do you want to be on a good day? Or what does society tell you your company should be run like? It is, who do we need to be? And probably more importantly, who are we? That's right. <laughs> because it's already there. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that you have to take away the inessential and that core stuff. And you have to have the courage to say, this is what we are. This is what we believe in. This is how we operate. Mm -hmm. And then as you go from sort of A to B, the challenge is that you then have to work out how to open that up to be broader and to be more inclusive and to be able to bring people into the organization that you haven't had to date. Yes. Because early on, a monoculture can work because you can go really, really fast. But monocultures get brittle really quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And so what we see in organizations is that's a key stepping point where it's like, maybe you're all men. Who's the first female engineer you hire? Or when you stop hiring people from your school and start hiring people from a different background, maybe you're fortunate enough to bring people together that have different backgrounds. How are you leveraging that? How are you increasing it? And so what companies that do this well do is they're very intentional. They think carefully about it. They're clear on what their values are. And their values are something that they're willing to hurt for. And then they sit down and they say, all right, given this, given this mission and this worldview, yep. how do we open ourselves up to people that we don't have experience with? How do yep. we have them come in and help us expand this and turn it into something even bigger? Does that get to answering your question? It does. I'd love to add a little color on this, just mm. my own perspective. Essentially, culture is um, deed, right? So there's word, there's you know, mission statement, yep. values, and you know, there's all that great stuff. But in the end, and I'm speaking as someone who's worked and mm. God knows how many industries, five to be exact, mm. um, every stage of startup, mm. Fortune 500, and healthcare and finance, there's always something above the door. Right? Mm. You know, we are, you know, we have great integrity, mm -hmm. you know, trust is everything. But mm. the issue is that as a company grows, the distance between word and, and deed mm -hmm. increases. Mm -hmm. Right, so the hardest part for I think a great culture, and you know, I've I've been fortunate to work with companies as a consultant, mm. companies that really care about leveraging what they've built. Maybe it's a family culture, maybe it's something that's you know very particular in their industry, but they want to take the best of what they've done and and bring it to a bigger audience. So mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of hiring once you raise a certain amount of yeah. money, etc. So. <coughs> The issue becomes when the distance between word and deed at the top, mm -hmm. maybe it may be very small, right? Maybe it's strategic, high-level stuff. When it starts filtering down into the mid-levels and especially the lower levels, that distance gets bigger and bigger because mm -hmm. everyone's incentives are vastly different. Right? Mm -hmm. The people in the middle tend to want to keep the status quo because that's what their job, what mm -hmm. their job is, right? So maybe a little bit of an increase, but mostly keep things stable. And then, you know, the the analysts, the people at the bottom, they're, you know, they're full of energy, but they don't have direction. Mm -hmm. And people on top, they have their own factors. Maybe they have, um, you know, the need to cash out their shares, or mm -hmm. maybe they have uh, shareholder responsibilities or whatever else, right? So the, the hardest part is having, I think, someone in-house. Actually, this is, this is a great conversation. Uh, I'd love to kind of lead into this. Um, I heard on uh, Tim Ferriss, there's a, a book called The uh, Loon Shots. Mm -hmm. So the, the author, uh, Safi Bakal, he brought up an excellent premise. He says, look, there has to be someone who's a chief incentives officer, mm -hmm. someone whose job it is solely to make sure that the incentives of every employee are aligned with that of the team. He or she is on the project and, and the company. There has to be that awareness. And because all the incentives are vastly different for people in the C-suite. So there's the, the founders and, you know, they, they control whatever mm. they control. Then you have the executives that come from maybe larger companies mm. to stabilize the ship. And you have middle management that came from you know, mm. a larger company to, to build something here. So I have more responsibility. And then the analysts. Everyone has very, very different interests. And unless you really address that and, and talk about it openly and find a way to set things up in the right way, that distance will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And instead of values above our door, it's, you know, what factor of hypocrisy <laughs> yeah. do we have here? So, um, you know, that's that's something that I found which is incredibly 
difficult. And there's no there's no software that can do this magically. There's no way to measure this uh, unless you come in from the outside and you have some you know magic ability to gauge this. Yeah, and I think yeah. this problem is as old as humankind. I mean, Something. if you think back on all the stories that get told through tribal communities and mm-hmm. so on, these are encoded learnings. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of what we have as myths are ways of teaching people how to be in the world, mm-hmm. how to relate, react with each other, how to survive, how to find water, how to do all these things. Yeah. And so we're drawing upon the same background of storytelling. And so when you talk about that, like how do you bridge the gap between word and deed? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the heart of the, the, the struggle in every religion too. That's right. That's like right. they have the word and then there yeah. is the implied deed and how do we match these two? 100%. And so what we see in organizations is, first of all, it has to be a living, breathing thing. It mm-hmm. can't be just a word. And then it's something you have to talk about. And what we see when people do it well is you you go, okay, if this is our value, what are the behaviors that, that drive that? What are the examples of that? What are the stories we can tell about when somebody lived that value? Yeah. Story about somebody living a value in this company, that's much more meaningful than me telling you the, the value. Absolutely. And then a lot of the power, and we were talking about this on a panel last night with some heads of people here in New York, is also looking at the shadow side. So value has a golden side, mm-hmm. and then a value has a shadow side. And the shadow side is somebody supposedly living the value, but actually doing it in a way that is destructive or is not delivering against it. And there's no way of ferreting that out other than to sit down and talk about it and to name it and to create a culture where you can call that out and say, actually, this is not you living the value. This is you using the shadow side of the value. Right. So give you an example. One of our, our core value, our first value of culture amp, is have the courage to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful value. If you've read Brene Brown and, and a lot of that work, it's yeah. really leaning into this idea that if you want to create trust, if you want to create a powerful culture, you, you actually have to be willing to be vulnerable in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so we lean into that, and it's a very big part of what we are. The shadow side of that value is people being vulnerable in a way that you are not ready for or you haven't asked for. Like mm-hmm. being vulnerable doesn't mean I can come up and tell you some deep, dark secret of mine that's going to make your life very, very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Oversharing can be a shadow side of have the courage to be vulnerable um, or people being felt like they're forced to be more vulnerable than they're ready to be. So as a company, we can be more explicit, more articulate about how these things play together. Yeah. But going back to your point about incentives, what we also find is that that for me is the heart. That's the soul, the poetry, all of that sort of stuff. The systems will also give rise to behavior. So it doesn't matter how pure the, the heart is. Absolutely. If the system that has been created mm-hmm is working against it, it will create maladaptive um, behaviors. And so compensation is a classic example of that. And that's actually one of the interesting things where we somewhat famously don't pay commission to salespeople for that exact reason, because people always talk about, well, we need to have incentive systems that align people's interests. Like, great. The thing they're not talking about is that when you align people's interests, you misalign them on everything else. Oh, yeah. And there's all these kind of weird secondary effects that happen when you say, hey, we're going to motivate this through financial instruments. Um, we could talk for hours about that. Yeah, but it, it's, bring in it's Daniel true. Pink and everybody yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, but it's funny to me that like even the stuff, Daniel Pink's using research from the 50s. Yeah. We've known this for a very long time, but it's still considered orthodoxy <laughs> yeah, yeah. to do it that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so to, to go back to the coaching piece, so I'd mm. love to hear your insights on the value measurable ideally of coaching Mm -hmm. whether that's someone in-house or whether you know let's say an external coach 
is brought in. So someone like myself through a platform that could be you know, Go Coach, that could be Leg Up, I mean, Muse, any of these. Yeah. Like, you know, Dime a dozen these days. Yeah, so I think there's there's a couple of different levels at which we look at it and where we see effects mm -hmm. in, in the software. Yep. Um, the first one, which is not something that I actually I was expecting, I hadn't really thought about it, but mm -hmm. we do a program at, at Coltramp called Coaching for Everyone. So mm -hmm. everybody, when they join the company at their um, six-month mark again, and then again every year, they get access to a, a set of coaching sessions. Mm -hmm. And for me, it came from this idea that a lot of people give executives coaches. Yep. And I was like, well, why can't we give that to everybody? Why can't we give them access to that? And so it's there just to be almost like a transformative piece That's right. and allow you to explore things. And I was talking to a few people that had gone through it, and I said, what was the value to you? And one of the bits that was really interesting is there were some people that were earlier in their career, and they said they'd been struggling with complexity and all the sorts of things that go when you early in your career trying to figure out how to make your way. Yep. And they found the coach was fantastic, not in telling them what to do, but just helping them deal with the ambiguity. That's right. And so, you know, we think about it as maximizing the potential of our high performers, whereas a lot of the value is actually just giving people tools to cope with uncertainty, cope with complexity, to realize that it's okay and, you know, you can, you can get to the other side. So we see that piece of the value. The second piece of value we see is that a lot of what comes through in our data is that People that are engaged or what leads to engagement inside organizations is often around career development mm -hmm. and people's perception that the place they're at is a place where they're growing. People want to grow. And yeah. to the extent that they can grow, they'll feel much more positive towards your organization than not. Okay. And coaching is a critical path in this because, first of all, a lot of people aren't really clear on where they want to go. And so they're like, I want to grow. But you're like, okay, well, where do you want to get to? I'm like, I don't know what's available. What, what could I do? What should I do? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Mm -hmm. And so coaches are often ideal in helping people go on that journey and start to articulate where they want to go and start to create a map for that. Yep. And then to identify what the skills are. So we see in the research that people will call out and say, we really want training of feedback. It's really hard to give people hard feedback. Once again, we can give you content. We can show you videos. We can give you books. Mm -hmm. A skilled coach can teach you that in a way that is very hard to do in the platform. And so we see a kind of continuum through it. And we see them sort of everywhere the data pops up with an issue, a coach can help support it. One of the challenges that we see on the other side in the data is it's difficult to sustain the interventions that a lot of coaching ah, places do. That's right. Particularly when coaching is done offsite. Yes. So that's a whole nother set of issues. That it is. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, you brought up a great point. Um, in my experience as a coach, I've been doing this for the for a while, quite a few years. Um, you know, lots of different companies, mm. some more progressive, some less. Some people looking to stay and do better at their job. A lot of people looking to leave. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's there's always that kind of um, push and pull from companies. They're afraid that the coach is going to coach my employees out of my company. Yeah, <laughs> and it's real. Yes, right? I actually said that when we set up our coaching program. Mm. I. We talked about it internally, and I said, we have to, if we're going to do this program, mm -hmm. we have to accept the fact that there will come a time when someone chooses to leave because of the coaching. That's right. Not and everyone that's sees okay. things this way. <laughs> that's okay. Like, that's the point of it. That's the point. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of companies have that fear, and they restrain the coaches from the full, full story. Yeah. Because one of the things that I think a, a, a really good coach does is he or she says, look, um, your initial sort of incentive is to think, okay, what are my options, right? It's to go from a position of scarcity 
Yes. Whereas your real story lies in a place where you're coming from a place of plenty. Mm -hmm. I have any number of options. I don't need to choose any but the one for me. Yes. Right. And that's based on internal factors. My story, what I've been through, you know, what what am I meant to do as a personality, mm. et cetera. Right. So how do I not just leverage? Everything is about leverage, right? You know, you slow down with the leverage. <laughs> First, go back and, and just understand again who you are. Where where are you holding? Where did you come from? How have you grown? Mm. Take stock of all those things. There's there's lots of positives, even if you you know, you've had a very up and down career and you've changed industries and everything looks like it's, uh, you know, everything is upside down. Even in that, even in those quote unquote negative data points, there's quite a lot of information. Mm. And there's so much to learn just from that and from that vulnerability. You're right that it's very hard to sustain, right? Because most companies say, oh, okay, here's, you know, mm. five sessions or 10 yeah. sessions and then, okay, adios amigo. Mm -hmm. And it's that's that's what I found. So through these various platforms, you know, companies are very apt to you know extend the gesture because it is it's a very nice gesture. It's a great you know employee perk, etc. Mm -hmm. And it can be transformative until it's not right because you're back to the grind. You have your uh, sort of constraints from management from your performance review and the systems have changed, cycle. and so it's very hard with exactly. new behavior to produce a different outcome. So my my philosophy, just to, you know, standing mm. on one foot, is that as the head of the company or someone who's the chief HR officer, you, you have to accept the fact that top talent will be here for a limited time. They, they are probably here, you know, if we're talking about millennials in their mid-career, probably two to three years. Even in a Google and a Facebook and, you know, Salesforce, those are the average numbers. Mm -hmm. and ironically, they haven't changed much since, you know, since Gen X and boomers were at the same stage in their career. That's because so the Gen things are a load of bollocks. But. That's right. It is. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, I talk a lot about that in my book. It's it's very, very it's similar. It's a cohort effect. It's a cohort effect, exactly. But also, I mean, yeah, millennials, yeah, we want everything faster. You know, we don't have any patience. We're behind. Anyway, separate subject. Different mm. day. Um, I would love to shift the conversation a bit. I, I noticed that you just released something called the Diversity and Inclusion Starter Kit. And yes. I'm really curious to delve into this. Um, you know, just speaking very bluntly, I know there's a lot of, of money thrown at this, although maybe not enough. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of talent that goes into this space. Mm. And there's a lot of excitement, right? Mm. Because companies... Um, through lawsuit or otherwise, are learning that this this is important for a lot of people. They don't have opportunities to work for the great great companies because they can't get in. And even if they're in, they're not taken seriously, or they're not yeah. their voices are not really heard. So, a lot of fluff around this subject, a lot of sort of politically correct conversations that often, if you look at the data, from what I've seen, and I, I want to hear from your data because that's even a lot more robust. What is there in terms of practices that you can implement, not just to bring in diverse voices and people that look different from different mm -hmm. schools? Mm -hmm. You know, I know there's this kind of um, expat effect in your company as well, which I think is a very interesting layer. Mm -hmm. um, how how do you do that when you do it effectively? So you meaning you in mm -hmm. Culture Amp and also your clients. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your mm -hmm. insights on that. I think the, the first thing you realize when you commit yourself to building a more diverse, more inclusive organization, one that seeks um, equity, seeks um, belonging for, for, for everyone, mm -hmm. is there's no finish line. And 
the more you get into it, the more you realize how many things need to be fixed, how many things need to change. Mm -hmm. uh, the way we work, we've had the fortune to work with a lot of great people um, mm -hmm. in, in this space over the last few years. And as you mm -hmm. said, I think there's, there's become a real movement where people have realized that this stuff matters. Yep. And, you know, there's data to support it. Um, my personal take on it is we go about it the wrong way. Everyone's like, show me the data that proves that diverse teams are better. I'm like, actually, show me the data that shows non-diverse teams are better. There is yeah. none. So why build them? That's right. Like, we live in a diverse world. Um, I think what we've learned and what we've seen is that, uh, and I think it was actually Dom Price from Atlassian was on our stage at Culture Fest Global, and he, he quoted somebody else. But the line that he used, which I loved, was, if you're going to spend a dollar on diversity, reserve two for inclusion or don't even bother spending it. Okay. Because it's like we need to start by creating a space which is inclusive of mm -hmm. people wherever they're coming from yep. if we're going to have any success. And that is challenging because it, it, it challenges a lot of things about how we are human and we have to teach ourselves new ways of being and, and new things. But it also connects with something that is very human too. So it's both hard and also easy in the same way. And so what we've seen is actual practices that organizations have, have used to, to do this well is – First of all, opening up that conversation. And when you open up that conversation, you have to open up with uh, an appreciation that it's not always perfect. So uh, Stephen Huang is our first, he was our head of DNI, he's our head of DNI's rotating role. He's about to rotate out of that role. And the thing he said to me when he took the role, so I asked him, what do you need me to commit to? And he said, he talked about some things. And then he said, my goal while I'm in this role is to help everyone at CultureAmp to understand how DNI is important to them That's right. and to help them understand that it's okay to be wrong. And I was talking to a, a woman by the name of Lily Zhang, who's written some really interesting work looking at the um, effects on transgender people in San Francisco and the tech industry and, and some of the, the trauma that they go through. And she and I were talking and I, I said to her, look, this stuff is really hard. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I sometimes worry about this and that. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said something that I loved where she said, there is a right way to be wrong and a wrong way to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's such, <laughs> such good advice. Such a saying for our times, if only more people would listen. Yeah, so the first practice that we see that works is opening up space to allow people to say the wrong thing yeah. and saying to people, you still have to be okay to being called out. Like take gender pronouns. I saw this yeah. wonderful presentation where somebody uh, was talking about like what to do when you mess it up. Right. And you can't just ignore it and say, well, that's a dumb thing, I don't want to do it. It is really important to people you then have to actually apologize for it. But you also, you can learn from the, the journey. You don't have to be pilloried for getting it wrong. Like everybody starts as a novice at some point. Yeah. Just admit you're a mistake and go learn about it and, you know, get educated. And so this whole process, and whether it's on gender, whether it's on race, um, there is so much to learn. And it's so hard for us to not feel defensive. Yep. You know, uh, you see this a lot where, you know, the cis white men are sitting there saying, hey, we're, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, the thing we need to understand is that it is possible, and I say this as a, a classic example of compound privilege in my role, mm -hmm. I can both be the problem and be part of the solution. And neither forces the other not to be true. Mm -hmm. And so we did this, we got listed as, or I got listed as, you know, top CEOs as voted by women on one of those strange websites. Right. So <laughs> top 50 and so it's like, that's great. You know, it's nice that that happened. But 46 of the 50 CEOs were men. So the problem is still a problem until that's like 25, 25. That's and right. so 
one of the best things I can do is not get on that list because there are other women that are out there doing a, a better job than me. But I can still get to help get to that point, and I can do it by being more open, by learning. They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think uh-huh. for me, the biggest practice that we see is just a willingness to try, yeah. a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to open up that conversation, mm-hmm. and then it goes back to stories. Yep. So one of the most powerful things that happened here at Culture Amp was we ran our own diversity inclusion um, survey, and so this starter kit that we rolled out is our full platform, mm-hmm. all the survey items. It's all our analytics. It's all of our action items. It's everything to help people go on this journey for free because we care about this problem. And we ran our own version of it and we're looking at our inclusion results and there were certain groups that were struggling with belonging more than others. Yeah. And so Stephen arranged a meeting where he picked, he picked some, reached out to some people that were in those groups and he said to them, look, you can choose or not, but I'd love you to come in and do this group. You choose which senior leaders you want to come in and talk to you. And then you have five minutes to tell your story with no right of reply. So the senior executive can't do a right of reply. They're just there to listen. And so I, I was one of the people that was invited in and I got to listen to these these stories. And mm-hmm. they were so powerful because they were stories of identity and their worldview and, and what's got to them being in this position. Yep. You can't walk out of that room and not feel compelled to try and build a better world of work and a place that's more diverse and more inclusive. So these are the practices that we see work. And of course, there's lots of other stuff and there's lots of things you can be trained to do and bias and all of this sort of stuff. But for me, they're the things that we need to pick up. It's um, just a quick note. Um, a friend of mine, he's uh, from Nigeria. He's lived all over the world and he's a very interesting uh, guy. He's, you know, he's found himself in a lot of different places, um, but for a long time, he didn't kind of find his place. And mm-hmm. then he just... Uh, uh, published a book recently. It's called uh, "Use Your Difference to Make a Difference." Tyro hmm. Roxon. Okay, cool. And um, you know, he speaks a lot on the subject, desk consultant, yeah. etc. But I really, for me, that's a much more sort of positive message. Instead of saying, you know, let let's go uh, club, <laughs> whoever <laughs> club those, yeah, for not, you know, but let's let's actually take the human stories of difference and use them in a positive way. That's not all or, all about political correctness. Yes. And again, going back to this idea of value in the story. Mm. Um, so something something interesting on the subject. Um, admittedly, I'm not anything like an expert. I just I'm really interested in what actually works. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's great to hire people that you know look different and sound different, but you really if you don't account for their voices and their stories and what they have to tell, you're actually missing out on massive value, I think, for your company and for your culture. So Yeah, and it's you know, it's yeah how people show up at work it's neurodiversity it's yep. all of these different things that people are living with increasingly we're finding in the workplace we need to have an attitude to how we support mental well-being that's right um i mean for a very long time the world in business was i hope i don't have somebody that has depression or suffers from anxiety because that's really painful yep. and now i think people are starting to realize well you can hope that as much as you want but pretty much everybody's got something Mm-hmm. And we need to accept this, and we actually need to lean into it and open a space. And the workplace can be a place to support those people. And <coughs> I think that's a positive change, but it's a really hard one for a lot of organisations. Yeah. And people are sort of floundering with how to deal with that responsibility. Yeah. Um, and there's also on the other side of that, we're seeing the thing that you just because you're the CEO, just because you're a manager, you can't deal with everything. There are people that are going to have clinical issues that you are not Absolutely. equipped or skilled to deal with. And the worst thing in the world is you to go read 
you know, a great management book and then sit down with somebody who's suffering from anxiety and say, all right, I'm going to use this method on you and I'm uh, going to get a result. <laughs> it's like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, elaborate. Welcome. Yes. Yeah. So how do we teach people how to identify different issues and how to help that person get whatever it is that they need? These are the questions of our time. <laughs> That's right. By the way, I heard just a very quick aside. Um, I heard recently, I met a CEO, he runs a coding, a software company, basically. But the, the interesting part is that he only hires autistic people. People on the coders, spectrum, yeah. And they're all remote. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a, you know, when I heard this concept, it just completely shook me to my core. I'm like, this is at once brilliant and completely crazy. How, how did you manage to pull this off? And he said, okay, uh, one of the things we have to do is, it's for us, that's our insurance. We have every employee fill out kind of a, a a book, more or less a book that tells other people how to deal with them. What is their style of communication? User manual, yeah. Yeah, and I just... I just we said, do that at Culture Amp, so yeah. everyone here writes a user manual. That's, that's but we're not all on the, on the spectrum. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be tough. Although I think some people probably are, but you know. It's <laughs> always, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and that's a great example. That we had a fantastic speaker once again at our, our Culture First Global. We had a panel on, on, on diversity and inclusion, and we brought people with different backgrounds, and there was a, a person talking about neurodiversity and, and how we better set up our organizations to support those people. Yep. And then one of the other people that was speaking, he was talking about the thing that I think is actually one of the most pernicious problems, which is um, social status. Like we talk about diversity, yet that's often the area where we have the least diversity oh, in our organizations. We, we're not crossing social divides. And it's amazing how resilient is the wrong word, but how stubborn those things can be to to change. Well, that's also coming out of university. You know, those those numbers from top schools are not always encouraging. They're getting worse over the years. Yeah, yeah. So. And and part of that is, yeah, anthropology, politics. You know, all of these things. Policy, <laughs> yeah, policies are not always the best. But anyway, so thank you. That's that's a that's a really really valuable discussion. I think that isn't had a lot. So let's um, just uh, to wrap up. Um, in terms of sort of practical takeaways, uh, again, thinking about early stage founders, perhaps, you know, someone who's raised a seed round or series A or B, you know, what would you give as advice for people that are early in building their companies, building their cultures, really getting a feel for the human side of the business? Um, what, what advice would you give? Again, this could be anecdotal, this could be from your data, Anything is more than welcome. Oh, where do I start? That's right. Um, <laughs> given the topic we just had, I'll throw something out that was really interesting to me. So there's a very specific thing, which was uh, if you read books, which a lot of people in startups do, mm -hmm. uh, I read a lot. And so I got asked by the team to give my list of books that had influenced me. So I, here's my top 50 books that have influenced me as an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. And then one of the people on my team asked me a very humbling question where she said, how many of those books were written by women? And so what was interesting is of 50 books, mm -hmm. there were 46 written by men. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I'd already chosen my top five, and three of the top five were written by women. But part of it is there's a lot of management books. Mm -hmm. And if you go back 20 years, all the management books were written by the same five white men. So That's there's right. like a pretty small thing. Yeah. But it got me thinking that early on in your journey, it's really good to sit down and whether it's websites you read, whether it's books you read, where you podcasts you listen to, just ask yourself, where are all those people coming from? And can you add just a little bit more diversity into where that thought is coming from? 
you know, for me, a lot of it is it's it's, it's a lot of IO psychology is normed on Western psychology. Yes, you know, can we listen to people out of Europe, out of Asia, out of other places, out of Africa that will give us new ideas? And the earlier you do that, the better because yep. it will influence your thinking. So that's one takeaway for everybody. Like write down your top 50 books. Now I've told you what you're looking for. You're going to come up with other ones, but yep. you'll realize it's really hard because you haven't been exposed to it. Um, I think I would start with values because I think values are the bedrock of everything. But the, the, the view I would give people is values are not what you want to be on a good day. Values are what you're willing to hurt for. Ah. They're what you're willing to hurt for every day. Yep. And so what you do is you sit down with your founders or you sit down with your early team and you ask yourself, what are the things we believe in? What are the things we're willing to lose for? Like if it comes down to walking away from the next term sheet or it comes away, comes down to not winning a particular customer, whatever it might be, why? What matters to you? And you've got to go below the surface. When people like respect or integrity, it's fine. But what does that mean to you? And why is that important? Because what we're looking, what you're looking for is to help start as early as you can to find a culture that is both distinct and individual and the effect that you want on people is you want it to make people want to be a better version of themselves yes so they have their own values they look at your culture and they go something about the company you're describing to me makes me want to be the person i want to be i'm going to come work for you so once again the sooner you start having that conversation the better and just allow yourself to you know circle around it and talk about it the actual words themselves will come it's the concepts that you have to get right Emphatic yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you two questions. I don't know. We might be running out of time here. Two more minutes. I can run slightly over if I have to. Okay, so. um, this just comes to mind. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not a financial forecaster or economist here, but um, you know there will be a recession at some point. Yes. When you have a recession, a lot of things that are you know fluffy and very progressive tend to take a backseat because shareholder responsibility. Yep. We have to, you know, cauterize the wounds and yep. all that kind of stuff. So when the recession comes, where will culture sit? Will it still continue blooming as a top priority for companies or will it take a backseat? What do you think? Two thoughts. I think it'll be more important. Um, and the, the two thoughts I have, which are, first of all, why, why care? Why invest in people? Right? Why do it at all? One of the ways I think about it is that if you're in this for the long haul, at some point, something bad is going to happen. Yeah. Your industry is going to change. Technology is going to, you're going to lose your major client, whatever it is. Why invest in people? Because at some point, you're going to need your people to invest in you. And you can't make that up later. <laughs> and that's what this is about. Like, so when we go into a recession, there's a whole bunch of companies out there at the moment where they're motive operators. We pay top of the market. We hire rock stars and all this yeah. sort of stuff. When the music stops, people aren't working for that anymore because that stuff's not available. Correct. Yeah. People are sitting down going, this is hard for everyone. I might not get a pay rise for two years because the, we're not winning in the market. We're losing customers. We're going backwards. We have you know, declining headcount. Mm -hmm. That's when the investment in all the non-monetary stuff really pays off mm -hmm. because people are like, actually, this is work I believe in. Yep. This is a place I want to be. Mm -hmm. This is a place where I'm treated with respect. Yep. This is a place where I can be the person that I want to be. And so culture is critically important now to be ready for that. And then when it happens, the companies that will succeed are the companies that work out how to not get more from their people, but able to do more with the people they have mm -hmm. because they're not going to be able to throw money at things. It's a great and, insight. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. see certain things change and some of the perks that are considered to be standard now won't be standard tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the core of creating a mission and a vision that people believe in, having values that matter, that won't go away. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs>
Terrific, Didi. Thank you so much for your time. It's really a pleasure to to have this conversation. Um, a wide wide range of subjects. Really, thank you. My pleasure. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to Commander in Chief podcast. To apply to be a guest on the show, head on over to cicmediagroup.com backslash guest. CIC is in Commander in Chief. So that's cicmediagroup.com backslash guest. These guys help us spread the word about the podcast and our mission on social media. We're cooking up something truly special over here, and we really need your help to spread the message. The reviews, especially, are huge for helping us grow and get the golden nuggets of wisdom from our world-class guests out into the world. Go on ahead, give us a review rating on whichever platform you use to listen. Our mission at Commander in Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, education media, thought leadership, consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people to become their own commanders-in-chief. And before you go, please make sure to hit that subscribe button for us here at the Commander-in-Chief Podcast so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. Let's not be strangers, friends. Okay. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. And of course, if you want to learn more about our work and impact, or just access some great content, plenty of that, head on over to CICmediagroup.com. That's uh, CIC as in Commander-in-Chief, mediagroup.com. Once more, this is Yuri Kruman, and thanks for listening.